millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. How can young women forge forward in a world not shaped for them or by them? When gender inequality snaps at their heels, no matter where they look, at work, at play, and in those bastions of male power, politics and parliament. Ashley Streeter-Jones was barely out of her teens when the shock of inequality set her on an extraordinary path of advocacy and fearless feminist action. by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger and I'm delighted to welcome you to our new Broad Talk series for 2021 where we'll take a deep dive into one of my greatest passions and perhaps my deepest concern, gender equality. In each episode, I'll be asking, are we there yet? And if not, why not? And heavens knows, with Australia currently mired in political sex scandals, high-profile harassment and rape allegations, and public shame around the very blokey culture of political power, Don't we need some deeper, thoughtful conversations right now? Well, you'll find that here on Broad Talk. We've got an amazing lineup of outstanding leaders, journalists, politicians, advocates, activists, and great thinkers to help unpack the myriad issues around gender inequality. We'll be talking about what's going on in 2021 and why it is that women are still struggling for recognition and power in just about every aspect of their lives. But it's not all about policy and politics, it's also about getting personal. Because, like you, I want to hear how others have navigated the pursuit for equality in their own lives and how they manage the challenges and pitfalls as well as the successes. 
Each week, I'll be posting questions on our Broad Talk Roundtable Facebook group. And you can jump on now. Just go to the Broad Talk Facebook page, yes, the dreaded Facebook, and click to join the group and Martin or I will immediately let you in. At the end of each conversation with our guest, I'll turn to your questions each week. And this week, I've got a real doozy to start with. In fact, it's such a pertinent question that rather than wait to the end of the podcast, I've asked our guest to address it too. And the question is, why are women in Australia so very angry right now? And to put that in context, last week, the federal government was hit by an explosive allegation of rape by a young Liberal Party staffer, Brittany Higgins. And this week, in the past few days, more women who worked for the Liberal Party have come forward with similar claims. We'll discuss the impact of Brittany's story and the anger that's brewing around it a little bit later. But first, let me introduce you to the amazing Ashley Streeter-Jones. At just 26 years old, this woman has a CV that makes my head spin. She's won more awards for feminist advocacy and youth leadership than, well, look, any other young person I've ever come across. She was recently a delegate at the World Economic Forum's Davos 2021, which is when I invited her to come on to Broad Talk. With degrees in international relations and diplomacy, this supercharged young woman has a huge career ahead of her. But as you're about to learn, such fierce passion has a flip side. And for Ash, all this advocacy and activism has come at a cost. Ashley Streeter-Jones, thank you so much for joining Broad Talk. It's so lovely to see you here. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm delighted that we get to sit down and eyeball each other because so many of these podcasts are done down the line. So it's really nice to have you here. Thank you for coming. There is so much I want to ask you, Ash. Um, but first and foremost, give us a little bit of your backstory. When I explain to people the things that you've done from a very young age. Here you are, all of 26 now, and yet you've done more than most people would do in a lifetime in terms of community work, NGO work, the awards you've won. Um, I'm going to run through a few of those things. So in 2018, we were very excited to report on the news that you had been named as one of Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia. And you were described as a youthful visionary. And that same year, you were recognised by the Foundation for Young Australians as a young social pioneer. And then that year, I also happened to be sitting in the audience when you were named the ACT Woman of the Year, which was a, a huge accolade. Um, that's just a few of the things you've done. But you've also set up a number of things. You were one of the founding uh, members of Jaziri or set that up, the Girls Takeover Parliament Program, which has been phenomenally successful. You've led youth campaigns for World Vision. You've assisted Plan International Australia's Youth Activist Series. You've co-hosted, of course, the – oh, sorry, co-organised the Canberra Women's March in 2019. 2019, you are also named as one of the Australian Financial Review's Women of influence. Gosh, should I go on? And in 2020, <laughs> you founded Raise Our Voice Australia, an initiative to, to boost the number of diverse young female and non-binary voices in public decision-making. And for those of you listening, the list goes on, but I think I'll stop there. <laughs> Ash, 
how do you do it? How how seriously? How do you do all that you do, and you hold a full time job? I do. Look, it it is a very good question, and if I'm being honest, sometimes I do it really well, and sometimes I really don't. So I've gone through cycles of operating really well, juggling lots of things, and I've gone through cycles of being honestly very burnt out and quite unhealthy and times when I've looked back and thought, okay, maybe those are the times when I was getting the greatest recognitions for things that I was doing, but they're also the times when I'm not proud of who I was as a friend or as a partner or as a daughter. So this year in particular – after the year that we've had with COVID, I'm focusing very much on on sustainability, on putting physical health first and realising that actually unless change is being made sustainably, and that includes personal sustainability, we can't actually achieve the outcomes that we want. Mm. So sustainability has to come first and I don't want to exist in a cycle of burnout. Mm. A sustainability of self. I hear you, girl. I hear you. I know a great deal about that and a burnout. But, you know, it kind of it, – it, it sort of – I don't know whether it, it upsets me or I should feel pleased to hear you at your age in your 20s to talk about burnout. I, and I say be pleased because at least you're acknowledging it. I know I mm. hit burnout in my career but didn't acknowledge it, didn't actually recognise it until probably you know a good decade, decade and a half later. So how have you become aware of your own burnout? With the year and the spaces that we're in, I think we're getting much better at putting words around these things. So I think I hit my first patch of burnout. It would have been in 2013. So that was my third third year of my undergrad. And that year I'd already started to get involved with my volunteering and I'd started an internship at World Vision Australia. And that year I did an immersion trip. So went to India, spent a few weeks in country. It wasn't volunteering. It was about learning the principles and the mechanisms of international development, how to work within communities, how to consult with communities to then design and deliver programs. And the idea was we'd bring that back and turn that into advocacy. This was actually, it it was quite a formative experience in a way. It wasn't the thing that got me on my volunteer journey, but it was a milestone along the way. And that deeply impacted my my mental health probably for about 18 months. How did that play out? How did you know that, that that's what was going on? Well, now I have the language to put around it and what I was going through was reverse culture shock. Mm. And that did end up leading to a very intense patch of burnout because I came back and was so confronted by the experience that I'd had. And to be honest, it wasn't even my first time to India or my first time coming face to face with poverty. Oh, so you'd been there before. I had. So you knew what to experience. I did. I uh, did. Well, you knew what you were going to experience, I should say. I did. And my the thing that actually got me interested in all this work was a trip I took with my parents when I was 11 years old. So before I was born, my mum and dad lived in Johannesburg for a number of years from 1990 to 1993. So quite a, a turbulent period yeah, in South indeed. Africa's history. And I was fortunate to grow up doing a lot of travel. I wasn't born in Australia. We moved here when I was four and we never actually intended to stay in Australia. It was always intended to be a stop along the way. But when I was 11, my parents took us back to South Africa for Christmas. And on Christmas Day in 2005, I found myself in Soweto. So for those who aren't familiar, Soweto stands for Southwestern Township. 
and it's the largest township in Johannesburg. So that experience of coming face-to-face with poverty on a day like Christmas, which showed such a stark contrast between my own experience of Christmas morning as a child versus what Christmas morning would look like for somebody living in quite extreme poverty was an incredibly jarring, but it was that light bulb moment. It was that first time that I actively thought to myself, I'm actually not comfortable with the world that I live in. Mm. That's a very young age to it have is that realisation. Yeah. Did you discuss that with your parents or was that some, the sort of thing that they spoke to you about or encouraged you to, to see and to understand? You know, I actually, I don't remember, but I grew up in a family where we were always discussing world and international affairs and I've always had a very keen interest in systems and systems change. Politics is a system, international affairs is a system, poverty is a system. Mm. So I don't actually remember the conversations that followed but it was definitely an interest that was nurtured. They were the sort of conversations that we had at home and that very much laid the foundations. All of which makes sense too that you went on to study international relations and then did a master's (laughs) in diplomacy. So yes, it all it all fits in, but coming back to the India experience mm. and what you call the reverse culture shock, I think mm. that's really interesting. Because I know, as a traveller, as a woman who did a lot of travelling on my own as a young woman, um, I always wanted to go to India and I avoided it because I just felt I couldn't couldn't manage it on my own, which is unusual for me. And I did eventually go there, but with my my husband, and I think I was probably better prepared to handle the incredible shock of not just the poverty but just the density of the yes. poverty and um, visiting the slums and despite having prepared myself and read about them and spoken to a number of people, I just don't think anything can prepare you until you're actually there to understand the the depth of poverty. Look, I, I agree and and that's exactly what I struggled with when I came home and when I came home I remember just feeling – angry and disillusioned and just so frustrated that I could sit on a tram and listen. I distinctly remember listening to someone's phone conversation complaining that she just spent $18 on a martini and I thought, oh my goodness, $18 on a martini. I've just seen people who are living on less than 50 cents a day. How can we have this attitude towards money and consumerism and not not giving to other – I mean, we, we just – because people – and it's no one's fault. People just don't necessarily have that perspective. But I was really, really struggling with that and I felt really out of step with the world for, for quite a long time. So how did that manifest though? Did you get depressed? I was pretty depressed. Um, again, I at the time, I think a few people had pointed it out to me and they said you should go and speak to somebody. But in this state of reverse culture shock – I very much said, no, I'll be fine. They won't understand. And of course, that was the wrong attitude and the wrong approach to take. My partner is a psychologist, so now I've got quite a different, uh, obviously, perspective. In the end, I did go to a psychologist to try and talk it through, but that kind of manifested itself into some other mental health issues and and I've, I've always had sleep issues and chronic pain, so I think there was a very clear link between my mental health and my physical health as well. So 
Yeah, I remember um, doing an event with you a couple of years ago and um, I was, I think it might have been the first time I met you and I was really impressed by how well you spoke and um, really impressed by your leadership uh, of young people at the time. But you had made some comment to me at the time about um, being somewhat of an insomniac and I was Mm. concerned for you because (laughs) I I hate to hear that, particularly um, among young people. And it doesn't seem to have improved though. You still grapple with that issue. Unfortunately, it does run very strongly through the women on both sides of my family. So it is, it doesn't matter what I've done. My circadian rhythm just is what it is. But my issue is that my brain doesn't switch off properly when I go to sleep. So it's not about the hours I spend in bed. It's about the quality of sleep. Mm. So again, returning to burnout, I hit quite a severe patch with my health last year where my pain was spiraling. That was leading to the sleep. Then I was getting stressed about my tiredness, which was causing pain. So I ended up going to the doctor very, you know, weeping and just saying, I just need a break. And he took one look at me and said, right, two weeks leave. You're going to do nothing but lie on the couch, go for walks during the day so you can get your sunlight and just take it easy. And I actually ended up being put on medication to help me sleep. And oh my goodness, it has, it has just been such a game changer. So I I really wish I'd, I'd done it sooner. Well, despite all of that, you know, it hasn't stopped you being incredibly productive. It's almost like, you know, in reverse, you're determined to be very (laughs) productive um, to make up for the fact that you do perhaps feel that, you know, you suffer not enough sleep and and, and pain. When you set up uh, Girls Take Over Parliament when you were one of the co-founders of Jaziri with Caitlin, tell us about why you did that, why you set it up. So I moved to Canberra in 2016 and we actually met when we were both volunteering with World Vision. So I was doing it down in Melbourne, leading some youth campaigns at both the state and then the national level. And Caitlin was running it up here in the ACT. So something that I had observed and also long been passionate about, but doing that work in the development space, mostly around the advocacy and fundraising, was just a reminder that actually nowhere in the world are women equal. And in some countries, we're 50 steps behind. In some countries, we're five steps behind. But in no country are we actually standing side by side with men. And of course, that's even worse for trans women and and women of color and other marginalized groups. Again, had always had this interest in politics and systems and systems change and had done a bit of political campaigning with World Vision, including the campaign for Australian aid, in which we tried to make Australian aid an issue that people would vote on ahead of the 2016 election. Uh, it didn't go very well, mm, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> particularly yeah. in, in the political the political climate at the time, um, I think had a lot to do with that, but it had really sparked this interest in politics as a system for change. So, But what made you think that you could do what you <laughs> did? And look, I'm laughing here because I remember meeting with you and Caitlin around that time and I was so impressed by your ambition, which was to get a bunch of young women, train them uh, around the way politics work and then get them into parliament and to act as shadows for hmm. ministers and the prime minister for a day. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, that's rather audacious, but terrific. Let's go for that. And you did it. You did it. What, what, what made you think that you could pull that off? I love that audacious was the word you used to describe it because that's exactly what I was going to say is I think it was just big thinking, a bit of courage and a lot of audacity. <laughs> but 
you need to, right? We we can't solve problems by doing way doing things in the way we've always done them. We have to come up with new solutions to old problems because for whatever reason, those old solutions haven't worked and they're not working. So Plan International Australia have these takeover programs that they run in different countries around the world, but at the time they were more focused on corporates. So it was still focused around women in leadership, but it was more around taking over organisations, either companies or media organisations. With this interest in politics and parliament, and having recently moved to Canberra, Parliament was the place we decided to conquer. So fortunately, uh, we did do that in partnership with Plan International Australia. We did have that support. But look, I'm not going to lie, it it took a lot of courage. But we loved the idea and, and there was such an important conversation to be had. We wanted people to look at young women in the halls of Parliament and go, Oh, hang on. We we don't see many of those. Why not? <laughs> Which you certainly <laughs> did. You did. And and yeah, it was incredibly effective. You know, which reminds me too of when um when you're at that summit in Hong Kong after you had been announced or named as one of the Forbes 30 under 30 across Asia, one of those young people to watch. <laughs> um you made some comment there about, you know, we are the visionaries. We are we we've got access to the internet to technology we are hmm. the visionaries and I, I thought then again even that is a rather audacious dare I say comment um where does that come from from within you that that you find the, the strength to put yourself out there like that that's a really good question reflecting on Julia Gillard's book which I finished recently one of the things they noticed across all of the female leaders that were interviewed is that they came from households where they were never told that they they couldn't do or couldn't be something. I was definitely raised in one of those households. I have a younger sister and I remember my dad telling me an anecdote one day. One of his friends said to him, oh, you know, but you girls can't, can't come kick around the footy or, you know, or something like that or, oh, you're disappointed you don't have sons. And he said, why, what, what do you think my dad, daughters can't do that my that my son would be able to so I very much was raised in a family where it's you know it's it's full of strong women and we were really encouraged to share our voices and to have opinions and and to to have a go and to have a go let's just hold it there for a moment we're going to take a quick ad break before returning to tackle a particularly difficult subject Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
Welcome back. Coming back to Parliament, um, we have just experienced a, a, a very um, possibly a game-changing story here in Canberra and, in fact, across Australia uh, around mid-February. Um, many would be familiar with this story, but I want to raise the story of Brittany Higgins, the young uh, parliamentary staffer who has alleged rape. Now, there's a lot we can't talk about with this story because, of course, it is going to uh, be subject to all sorts of um, legal debate, no doubt. But I, I raise it because of your particular interest about getting girls and women into Parliament and your own uh, engagement yourself with Parliament as a young woman in your 20s, I, I want to talk about it in terms of the, the cultural problems around women power and sex and sexualisation, particularly mm. in a place like Parliament. But I'm going to preface this by saying too, I've, I've written uh, op-eds about this story myself and I was quite surprised at the response from women and some men but but mostly women right around Australia um, coming back to me to tell me how angry they are about the story. So before I ask you to to give me um, your thoughts, I'm going to just share with with everyone listening a little bit of background for those who don't know uh, the story about Brittany Higgins. So Brittany was a former Liberal Party government staff and she worked for Minister Linda Reynolds, who was then Minister for Defence Industry, and we're talking back in uh, 2019. And in a TV interview in, in Feb, early February, um, she alleged that late at night in 2019, she was taken into the minister's office by a colleague, uh, a parliamentary staffer. Uh, she was drunk. Uh, the two of them had been uh, at a Liberal Party event that night. Um, she knew that she was drunk and was leaving the event when this colleague suggested they share a taxi together. And then on that drive, uh, he suggested that they went by or stopped by Parliament House. He signed her in. They were given access to the minister's office. Now, exactly why is unclear, but we understand the door was unlocked by security staff. Now, in what has now become an infamous TV interview, Brittany Higgins went on to describe how in the minister's office she felt sick, she lay down on the minister's couch and she would seem to have either passed out or fallen asleep only to wake up and find herself half naked with the co-worker slumped on top of her, sweaty and in the act of intercourse. She said she cried, she said no several times and she alleges that she was raped. Now, the man left the office and... Brittany, who was 24 years old at the time, was found by security staff in the minister's office early the following morning in a state of undress, and she eventually left the building. Now, what happened next and who did what and what action was taken or not taken has been a matter of conjecture and will be a matter for legal debate, and so we're certainly not going to, to uh, discuss that here. But perhaps what is indisputable is that Brittany, by her own account, felt that in the wash-up of all of this, she had to choose between silence and keeping her job, a job that she said was her dream job at the age of 24. She'd worked very hard to get to that position. So she had to choose between silence and keeping her job or taking some kind of action that underlined the seriousness of what had happened. And she's been clear in saying that she believed that by taking action or speaking out, meant she would lose her job, this job that she loved. And she says she felt pressure to just keep her head down and get on with her work whilst being told 
that her boss, the minister, would fully support her if she went to the police and that the choice to go to the police was hers. So she had agency around that and we know that she chose to carry on with her job and that she was later moved into another minister's office and eventually she left her employment. Um, and as I said, in, in February this year, 2021, she went to the public, uh, she went public by speaking, um, on television, in the media, alleging rape. Now that, they're the basic details as much as we can discuss. But what I'm interested in is your take on the underlying culture of politics, power, and and young women, um, we've had a number of stories break in Canberra and certainly around Australia about young women and sexual harassment, bullying, um, and inappropriate relationships, and then um, power plays around employment. We've had a number of those stories in the last few years. So, when you heard the Brittany Higgins story, what, what was your what was your take on it? What was your your first thought? I felt sick. As you were talking, I just realised Brittany is the same age as me. Mm. It's confronting when you when you hear these sorts of stories in any site, and I think part of part of I wouldn't say the problem with the story because oh my goodness, this is it's just it's heartbreaking for for Brittany for those who love her. I can't imagine how difficult the decision was to stay quiet or come forward. The recovery, oh, I mean, yeah, it's. It's hard to put words around, but I think more than anything, there has been such resonating anger. Mm. And I know we were discussing this before we started recording. There is so much anger around this. What do you think that is? Because as I said, I've been overwhelmed by it, or inundated, I should say. Um, and it, quite frankly, it is overwhelming. Um, I mean, I wrote about the anger and I mm-hmm. felt anger, uh, but it, I, I've never had so much response to a column I've written ever before. Um I don't think, uh, and and it is people telling me that they are angry. What do you think that anger is all about? This story is so – we've heard it before and we'll hear it again. It is – I hate to hear, hear you say that actually, Ashley. We'll hear I, it again. I do. We will, we will hear it again. And, again, it may have happened in Parliament this time and there has been discussion around – the blokey culture that persists in this. But we've been talking about that for years. We have, years. and that's part of the problem. How can we keep having these same conversations and nothing seems to substantively change? We should not be sitting here in 2021 having these conversations, whether it's about safety in the workplace, and it is a workplace and everybody deserves to be safe at work, whether it's around the culture that exists in our politics. And this is not just federal parliament. We hear this at state parliaments. We hear this in local councils. This is so pervasive Mm. and we're not taking the steps for whatever reason. We are not taking the steps to stop these stories from happening again. I had a woman contact me today who, in response to my column, who is a former MP herself, and she said when she had spoken to some of her colleagues about her surprise at how rough and um, bullish the behaviour was in Parliament House and, um, you know, it's it kind of, uh, well, took her by surprise. She said she was told by a number of colleagues that, oh, look, just you'll get over it. 
politics is a nasty business. And she wrote to me saying, why do we accept that politics has to be a nasty business? Now, that in itself made me very, very angry. But then it comes back to, as you say, a, a culture that we we seem to be aware of but just incapable of shifting or changing. And women seem to be the ones that cop it most. I, I'm so speechless at that comment. I understand that sometimes people are nasty. This is not nastiness. This is rape. That is absolutely well, should alleged, be rape. Alleged, alleged rape. Alleged rape. You're absolutely correct. My apologies. There should be zero tolerance anywhere. Mm. This is <laughs> let me let me put this to you though. One of the things that I think has also made a lot of people angry, and again, men as as well as women, but um, women in particular, mm-hmm. is a comment by the prime minister when he gave a, a press conference after this story had broken and um, Brittany Higgins had gone on on national television on the project and and spoken very very strongly, and, and it was a very moving interview and and shocking really. And he said that he had watched this and he'd listened to what she had to say and then, and I'm going to quote here, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison said, Jenny, Jenny being his wife, Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. And so, as I've reflected on that overnight and listened to Brittany and what she had to say, there are a couple of things we need to address. And then he went on to talk about some of the detail. Now, that comment about what do you, what would you want to happen if it were our girls has enraged a lot of people. What do you think about that? I think what's interesting around this comment is it probably is the way that most Australians view the issue which in a way is is disappointing. You would like to think that we can automatically afford respect to women and recognise that everybody is deserving of care and, and respect and should never be put in a position where they experience any kind of violence, sexual, physical or other. And, and to think, look, I don't have daughters and I don't have sons and yet I don't think I lack empathy. Um, mm. and I don't think I lack, um, compassion around dignity, human dignity, human rights, etc. Um, I guess I found it a, quite a shocking comment because I did think, well, are you suggesting that if you didn't have daughters, you, you would only see this as a political problem? Well, on the flip side, I think there's another really interesting perspective is, what are parents saying to their sons? Mm. So a lot of conversations are probably being had around, oh my goodness, what if that was my daughter? But I think we actually also need to stop and say, what if that was my son? We talk about violence against women as a problem, as a women's problem. Violence against women is not a women's problem. It's a men's problem. And we need to shift that narrative. And again, it's been interesting looking at some of the reporting around Brittany Higgins, and also the reporting that we have generally around violence against women. And it still very much portrays it as a women's problem, or he was a lovable bloke, he just flew off the handle. We are so gentle on the men, and we're so. We do a lot of victim blaming. We, we do a lot of victim blaming. So, actually, I think the conversation we need to have isn't maybe so much what if it was our daughters. We need to shift that to the behavior of our sons. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Ashley, a really interesting point because I don't think we've been talking about sons or, or, or males in this um, story 
much at all. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the missing thing. But, of course, for an allegation such as this to be made uh, uh, about rape horrific as, as this, this story is, and also the, 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 the sheer lack of agency um, this young woman clearly felt she had when it came to diabolical choices, you know, career-crushing choices um, and her desire to hang on to the job but know that she'd been tainted and um, we've heard that story as well before, certainly on Four Corners when mm. someone who was having a, a, an affair with a minister, when the affair ended, she was moved on and demoted and demoted and demoted. Um, you know, look, you know, as we've both said, you know, we hear these stories over and over again. I wonder, though, for a young woman such as yourself in your 20s, do you – are you optimistic about the power of feminism to to actually – shift the dial on this kind of putrid culture because I've got to say when I was your age I was optimistic and I was very active in feminist uh, um, in feminist uh, agency and feminist um, activity and advocacy and here I am much older than you many years later wondering god what happened it's a really interesting question and again we're going back to putting all the onus on women in a lot of ways to make the change feminism has a complicated relationship with how it involves men and i think this is a it is an important conversation to be had we don't want uh men coming into spaces and speaking for us but we need men to work with us to be part of this change we can't always be taking that on as ourselves and trying to push that through and sort of letting letting men get away doing nothing or brushing it off and going, yeah, but, you know, that problem doesn't impact me. It will probably go away. Why don't you just calm down? Which we've all heard so many times. Just calm (laughs) down. Just calm down. And I have to say, you know, at the moment, if I sound emotional, I am emotional. I'm really angry and I'm really worried that there are generations of young women who are my age, older, younger, who are going to look at parliament and think, that's not a place for me. And we we can't we can't have that. And yes, okay, getting getting numbers of women in is one thing and that's great, but numbers don't necessarily equal cultural change. You can have 50-50 representation and you can still have a blokey culture where female MPs are talked over and if female MPs are copying it when they're in office, where do you take that? And yeah, look, sometimes women can be just as bad as, as some of the men, um, at trying to restrain, uh, women's, um, behavior and, uh, their own agency. And I'm thinking what comes to mind right there is, uh, the speaker in Tasmania some time ago, a female calling out another female who was, uh, standing up and very forcefully speaking. And she was told to sit down because her behavior was unladylike. What? <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I had to do a double take and go back and and listen to that again, thinking, did I really hear that right? Uh, I did, unfortunately. So, yeah, (laughs) you're absolutely right. It's not just about the numbers because we can get women's numbers up Mm. and numbers involved, uh, women involved, but it doesn't necessarily change the culture and that's where the really, really hard work is. So coming back to feminism and and, and optimism, I have to ask you this because it fascinates me with um, young women in their 20s Mm -hmm. who suggest that uh, they're really is no problem and that feminism is unnecessary (laughs) and that, you know, things are pretty much okay 
because things are changing. What do you say to that? Well, that's obviously wrong. <laughs> there are so many, there are so many instances we can point to that prove that wrong. And yeah, okay, we'd like to think that we're equal, but COVID-19, for example, is such a, a great way of shining a light on all the existing inequalities. When you look at the global numbers of jobs lost, hours lost, increase in poverty, increase in caring duties, people considering leaving the workforce because they can't balance everything. It's all fallen on, not all, it has predominantly fallen on women. Every crisis is gendered and there have been some great studies that show COVID-19 has really set back gender equality and we have we have a lot of work to do and this is part of what ties into my passion of getting more young women into policy we need people who understand our lives and our issues being at the forefront of, of solving the problems that we experience and sitting at the at the head table and sitting at the table making yeah being part of the the, the key decision making um, teams but uh, where where to for you where do you see yourself heading in terms of the advocacy work that you do and and also the, the these things that you are so passionate about what do you want to do with all of this energy and passion I would love to really just breathe some life into the program that I've started. So Raise Our Voice Australia, I ran it last year as a pilot program because I am really passionate about this notion of no decisions about us without us. I strongly believe that whether it's women or young people or First Nations Australians, everybody should be involved in this in the decisions that impact our lives. Our biggest policymakers are government. So whether it's politics or public policy, we need a pipeline of talented young women, gender diverse people, people from diverse backgrounds to be entering these spaces and solving our problems. One thing I love about working with young people is that thanks to social media, although of course it has its pitfalls, young people have access to information like they never have before. We're learning about issues, we're learning about nuances of issues, and we are in a position to take action. So we need to support those people who want to take action. We need to be changing the face of leadership and changing this notion that a leader is an older white man. So when you say, though, that you want to breathe more life into into this particular program, it's one of many programs and things that you've set up. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask this question, and I mean this in the nicest possible yep. way, but do, do you ever feel like you've got too many balls in the air at one time? Like that, that perhaps if you were to do, few, I'm sound like your mother now, aren't I? If you were to do few and, and just focus on one or two, <laughs> that you'd, you'd have the time and, and possibly even, um, you know, get, get garner the support around you to really get it really get it going? I think about this multiple times a day and I'd be <laughs> lying if I said I didn't. I think part of the challenge is that the work I love doing doesn't pay me. Mm. It's it's as simple we all have that. We and it's all as complex that. as yeah. that. If the work I did gave me a, a good income and kept a roof over my head and let me save for that ever-elusive house deposit, that's where I would be putting my time and energy. But you are absolutely right and it's something I really need to stop and evaluate and I keep saying to my partner I'm going to put together a framework through which to view opportunities <laughs> but as passionate people I think we yeah. often end up going yes that sounds great of course yeah. I'll support and then next thing you know you look at your week and you go oh my goodness what am I doing to yeah, myself I know. but you do it because you love it I think it's just as you said 
keeping that sustainability in mind, um, thinking about where you want to go. And again, I'm, I'm angry, but I'm also passionate. And I know that I exist in part of a, a feminist, angry, passionate community. So there's also a lot of power in collective change. And one of the things I love doing is connecting with people like you, because we always go further together. So it's also looking at where we can do things like collaborate, combine efforts, amplify impact, and we don't have to do it alone. Absolutely. And look, I'm going to give you a bit of advice here, feeling, <laughs> feeling, feeling a bit like Virginia the auntie now. But, you know, because I, I grapple with this and I've always yeah. grappled with this, you know, how, how to uh, to quarantine a little bit of time for myself and for sanity whilst wanting to do so many different things. Some things that you throw yourself at will work and some don't. And in fact, that's okay. That's really okay. And I must say, I have been the great beneficiary of support all along my career. And I've had some wonderful advice from, from men and women who have, um, have, uh, informally mentored me. But one of the things that, that really struck me was when a boss of mine said, look, Virginia, throw out a whole lot of it, throw a whole lot of seeds out there. Some will grow and flourish and some will go to weeds. It doesn't matter. Um, but just keep, you know, keep throwing them out there. And I, I kind of hung on to that and I've hung on to it ever since because, yes, it's true, some will work and some don't. But I think there's nothing more powerful than working on something you feel passionate about, even if it does mean you're sitting up all night working on it. The the, the sense of um, value and achievement from that, even though it pays zip, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't put a roof over your head and it doesn't buy you nice clothes. It's just probably you know I think the most satisfying thing we can do when when we know we're doing something useful and and honoring our own passion. Yeah. So whilst you've got the energy, girl, go for it, <laughs> go for it. But Ashley, can I finish off by saying please get lots of sleep? <laughs> I'll try. I have to admit, I am a very strict in bed by 9.30 person because, woo, you're 20s. But I've, you know, it's taken me quite a few years and working shift work and working nine to five and, and being on all different sorts of schedules to realize that I'm just somebody who needs to be in bed by 9.30. So I can guarantee if you send me a message after that won't be looked at. Well, that's very, <laughs> you can very, test me. <laughs> you know, that's really good to hear. I'm really, really pleased to hear that. That's good. Stick with that for the rest of your life. Ashley Sruder-Jones, it has been such a delight to speak with you and thank you so much for um, coming all the way over here and, and giving me this time in what I know has been a very, very busy week for you. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, when I get a bit despondent about the lack of action and progress on gender equality, I only need to look at young women like Ash and I really take heart. It's so affirming to see the sort of work that she and others like her are doing to try and make our world a better place. And I'm really blown away by that sort of optimistic passion. It's good for the soul, isn't it? Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat. Thanks so much for joining me. Now, I'd love to hear from you. Send me your questions. What do you want to ask me? And as we explore the issue of gender equality in this series, what are some of the questions you'd like me to ask our guests? You can contact me on our Facebook page, Broad Talk. That's all one word. Join our group, the Broad Talk Roundtable, and leave a comment, question, an observation, or whatever you like. You can find me also most days on Twitter. I'm at Virginia underscore house 
H-A-U-S-S. I'd really love to hear from you. So get clicking or tapping. Until next time, happy chatting. Oh,